morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Each week, I have the pleasure of unpacking the Parashah, the weekly reading that is offered in synagogues throughout the world on Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. And the unpacking takes place with a guest scholar who joins me for a conversation on the more interesting aspects of the portion. This week, we have a double portion to read. It's called Bahar Bahukotai, and you can find it beginning with Leviticus 25.1, continuing through Leviticus 27. Let me share, for those of you who are new to our podcast, why we have double portions. There are approximately, well, the Torah is split into 54 portions called parashiot. The entire Torah is completed once per year, which works out approximately one Torah portion per week. More precisely, though, there are 54 Torah portions in the Torah, but only 50 or 51 Shabbatot in the year. In addition, there are at least two and sometimes as many four or five times when Shabbat falls on a holiday or more precisely a holiday falls on Shabbat and the normal Torah portion is not read that week. Therefore, the calendars and the Torah portion uh, litany need to be reconciled. The normal Jewish year, not a leap year, which adds an additional month, is generally 354 days long. 354 divided by seven is 50 weeks, with a remainder of four. In other words, there are 50 or 51 Shabbatot during a normal year. Therefore, there are at least um, seven times when we need to accommodate a double portion, when we take into account holidays such as Passover and Sukkot, which always include a Shabbat and on which a different Torah portion is read. So we have these double portions, and this week's double portion is from the book of Leviticus. Um, during a leap year, of course, an extra month is added, and so um, the double Torah portions are divided into single portions to accommodate the extra month. My guest this morning is no stranger to Jewish faith and Jewish fact, Rabbi Mark Howard Levin, who is the founding rabbi and now Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Beth Torah in Overland, Kansas. Rabbi Levin is a native of Baltimore, Maryland, graduating from Boston University and has received a Master's of Art in Hebrew Letters and ordination from the Jewish Institute of Religion. He has completed a Doctorate of Hebrew Letters and an Honorary Doctorate of Divinity from all from the same institution. He has been a congregational rabbi for the majority of his nearly 50 years in the rabbinate. And in uh, 
1988, he founded this wonderful congregation in Overland, Kansas, known as Congregation Beth Torah. It is a pleasure to welcome back to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, Rabbi Levin. How are you? I'm terrific. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for joining us again. Our Torah portions are found um, in the midst of the book of Leviticus. So let's begin with uh, an overview of what is the book of Leviticus. Unlike Genesis and Exodus, which are primarily narrative stories, which our listeners are probably familiar with, uh, Leviticus has very little narrative associated with it. What's it about? Well, this is a a great question. Uh, If you read the, the five books of Moses, the Torah, you'll see that Israel arrives at Mount Sinai in the 18th chapter of the book of Exodus and doesn't leave until the 10th chapter of the book of Numbers, which leaves them at Mount Sinai for the entire book of Leviticus. Now, what are they doing? They're getting legislation. What kind of legislation are they getting? The Bible is concerned, and particularly the book of Leviticus, with the idea of holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is being in touch with God. Uh, God is that which is ultimately holy. And proximity to God we talk about in terms of holiness. So the book of Leviticus that begins with the various sacrifices in the sacrificial system goes through the end, which is our two Torah portions, the double portion as you've spoken of this week, and talks about all the ways in which we are holy. It's not just a matter of uh, offering sacrifices. There's also the priesthood. They have to be holy. There's also the sanctuary. That has to be holy. There's also what we eat. So we begin to see that every aspect of life has the capacity for holiness. So whether we're dealing with our own food or the priests that offer the sacrifices or skin diseases or our uh, married life or our sexual relations or the holy times, the holidays during, during the year, all of these give us the capacity to get closer to God or indeed further away. So the overall theme of Leviticus is purity and impurity or holiness. We could do things and be impure, which drives us away from God, or we could do things in a manner that enables us to be pure and therefore closer to God. Now, this week's double portion, we see that the land is holy. As a scholar, Ellen Davis, makes clear in her work, uh, the as the world is to humanity, the land of Israel is to God and the Jewish people. So the land of Israel has this particular capacity for holiness. The Jewish people, a holy people, live within that land. And we have the capacity, Jewish people has the capacity to be holy or not, or choose not to be holy, particularly by dealing with idolatry. So at the end of our portion, we're going to see blessings if we act in accordance with what God tells us to do, God's instructions, or curses if we don't. And of course, the story of the Bible is all too often how the people do transgress and the consequences of their transgressions, but also how people keep these instructions and live in relationship to God. So um, there are a couple of points perhaps we can clarify for our listeners. It sounds like 
neither people, the Jewish people, um, or any people are born holy. They only actualize the potential of holiness. And they do that through um, how they live. Is that correct interpretation of what you said? That is very accurate. And the difference with Christianity is, of course, we really have no concept of, there is a minor concept in Judaism of original sin that pertains to all humanity, but we do not emphasize that at all. And rather, we have the built-in capacity to either follow God's instructions, which we call mitzvot, or to deny them. That's the story of the Garden of Eden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We have the right to choose as Eve chooses. So we decide how we're going to live. And the Bible also builds in, and Judaism builds in, the capacity for atonement. Inevitably, we will stray, either in a major way or in a minor way. But when we stray, it's simply built in. This is not permanently estrange us from God. Rather, we have the capacity for atonement. God provides ways for atonement in which we get back closer. To be clear, for instance, in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, if you touch something, a, a formerly living animal that is now dead, one will be, for that day, estranged from God. But sundown and, and immersing oneself in water will uh, bring one back into relationship, into a pure relationship, a holy relationship with God. This is expected. These, this is the process of living. So it's not eternal estrangement at all, but rather we want, we would prefer, and God would prefer that we live in this relationship that everyone has the capacity for, just as everyone inevitably will spend part of life estranged from God's purity. So when you say estranged from God, is that the same as impurity as it is used in the book of Leviticus? There are a number of instances where we're told that um, um, this makes you impure. The priest is impure if they touch a dead body. Um, disease is known as Tazria and Mitzora, um, which we've spoken about on this show in other circumstances, make one impure and therefore one is estranged from God for that moment. So let's talk about it in terms of Leviticus first, and that is estrangement simply means that one cannot come into holy precincts. What are the holy precincts? The temple mount, the temple courtyard, offering a sacrifice. So estrangement means that one cannot do things, uh, accomplish the actions which are holy. Now, since the destruction of the temple 2,000 years ago, we have a different idea about this, and that is that, that we can estrange ourselves, not permanently from God, but by not keeping God's commandments. And the different movements within Judaism see these things differently. Some movements would emphasize, for instance, the dietary laws, what's called kashrut, and, and not keeping them, they would say, estranges you from God, which means you don't have the same kind of relationship. Other movements, like the reform movement, would say, no, it's all a matter of morality. If one does not live a particularly moral life, one is at a distance from God. And the more morality we keep, in the reform movement, the closer we are, the better we can access God and live in relationship. And Leviticus, if I understand you, provides both options. Both options. It both offers a uh, 
commandments of ethical life and commandments of ritual life. Absolutely the case, and ritual and ethical. And of course, the prophets in the Bible, which we're not particularly discussing this morning, but the prophets emphasize the ethical life as being most important. So for instance, the first chapter of Isaiah, one can see, or the 58th chapter of Isaiah, and many other places, if one does not keep an ethical life, the ritual life doesn't matter. Good. So I hope the uh, listeners have an overview of how the book of Leviticus speaks about holiness as bringing one into a situation in which the potential for closeness to the divine exists. But in our Torah portion, we have an interesting set of laws that relate to the number seven. Um, It says in our Torah portion that on Mount Sinai, God communicates to Moses the laws of the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, all work on the land should cease and its produce become free for the taking for all. And seven sabbatical cycles are followed by a 50th year, known in the Torah as the Jubilee year, on which work on the land ceases, all indentured servants are set free, All ancestral estates in the Holy Land that have been sold revert to their original owners. So there are a number of interesting aspects of this. Firstly, the um, use of the number seven. Um, And then, of course, this notion of uh, seven times seven. Uh, So let's start with the number seven. The number seven repeats itself in many cases throughout the Torah. Could you offer us some uh, suggestions of where else besides today? So this is very important. The underlying magical number, so to speak, uh, not supernatural, but the underlying uh, magical number in the whole Bible is the number seven. It's introduced in the seven days of the week. And then if you look in Genesis chapter two, verse three, and we've already emphasized the idea that, that to live is to be in a holy relationship, we have that the Sabbath is holy. Every seven days, there's a holy time. And that holy time is superior to other times, such that the ideal for God is to live in relationship to God. Six days we work, and then on the seventh day, we dedicate a whole day to our relationship with God, which is a superior time to the other six days of the week. So we have one every seven every seven days. Now let's talk about the seven seven years. Uh, In the book of Exodus, you find that slavery among Jews can only continue for six years, and then in the seventh year, the slave will go free. In our particular Torah portion, there seems to be a different source, perhaps, and the slaves would go free in the 50th year. So we have both the cycle of seven, well, I shouldn't say both, the cycle of seven days, the cycle of seven years, uh, particularly pertaining to slavery, and then the cycle of 49 years and of 50 years, the, 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 uh, Jubilee year, uh, let the, on the Liberty Bell, it says, um, that the 50th year that you shall proclaim their freedom. So proclaim liberty throughout the land, throughout the land. So in Leviticus chapter 25, everyone becomes free. Now I want to emphasize, and with this, I'll, I'll conclude this part that in this 50th year, All land is shared equally. 
even if someone sells their land. In the book of Leviticus, selling land is not permanent. What does this indicate? It indicates that God's creation is to be shared such that everyone has the opportunity to earn a living and to live at some minimal level according to the culture at that time. So everyone gets a patrimony. Everyone has the opportunity uh, to to eat and to and to live a peaceful life. And even if you find yourself in desperate straits and have to sell your land, you get it back in the 50th year. So two things, again, that I want to clarify. Um, some of our American listeners, or maybe even some of our Canadian listeners, may equate slavery with the well-known slavery of the American um, enslavement of Afro-Americans or slavery in the Caribbean islands. The Torah seems to suggest a different kind of slavery. It suggests indentured servitude for economic reasons, one, not something that's unfamiliar to the Western society. But um, it seems that that's what the Torah is talking about. One who has sold himself uh, to repay debts or for other economic reasons. And so his debts are clear. But Rabbi, what kind of, while this sounds wonderfully socialistic, that everybody gets to participate in all the land and the land belongs to God, what kind of economic chaos might this have caused if it was um, implemented as written, namely that everybody would go back to its original owner. So somebody buys a piece of land and with the expectation that that land is theirs, imagine if you bought a house and uh, in the 50th year, it reverted to the original owner or the descendants of the original owner, you're out a lot of money. How does this work or did it ever work? The book of Leviticus says very clearly and specifically that land is only to be sold in consideration of the number of years left between the year you're in and the 50th year. So you're really paying not to purchase the land in perpetuity, but you're paying for a lease. And the lease is until the 50th year when it, by of necessity, according to biblical law, returns to uh, the original owners. Now, in terms of housing, You're very right. And the Torah also says that the housing in a walled city. So, for instance, Jerusalem that always had a wall around it or Megiddo that had a wall around it. In that case, uh, the uh, house can be redeemed for one year and then the sale is in perpetuity. So the Bible takes care of the idea that that one might uh, that it might be economic catastrophe. No, there would not be. It's anticipated now. You want to say, is this socialism? No, it is not socialism. What it is, is taking care of everyone at a minimal level. So there is the notion of a a social substructure, a safety net for people so that no one suffers. So let's say that you're a farmer and your crops didn't come in one year. There wasn't enough rain. And and, And so you mortgaged your crop for the next year. And the crop went bad that year as well. And therefore, that you had to sell your land, okay. And if it goes bad a third year, then then what do you what is left to to sell? Well, you sell yourself into indentured servitude. The Talmud says about this kind of slavery, quote slavery, okay, that the owner is the slave because the owner has to treat the indentured servant so well that in fact it costs him more than it's worth. 
which is clearly a, se- a sense of trying to say, you know, you don't want to do this. Okay? You don't want to have slavery. Okay? Because, in fact, it's not a good economic proposition for you or for the slave. But there is the underlying idea here that everyone who is alive deserves to eat and live in some sort of humane capacity. And we need to take care of our neighbors. Um, And I suppose that the statement that all the land belongs to the divine is an attempt to remind individuals who, um, not just the Israelites, but those who read that acquisition is really not in perpetuity, but it is only loaned to you, similar to the way uh, the Torah understands life. Absolutely. And I want to emphasize in the writings of Ellen Davis, professor um, of, of Bible and theology at Duke, um, she emphasizes that the, that the Bible's structure of reality is that there is enough, she calls it the manna economy. As in the book of Exodus and in Numbers, there is manna given enough food for everyone to live for that day and a double on Friday to cover the Sabbath. So God set up the world so that there's a sufficient amount for everyone and not a surplus for anyone. And if we're willing to live in God's way as the prophets tell us to do, if we're willing to really follow God's laws, then we would take care of our neighbors and we would also be taken care of. That's the biblical method. It is not socialism. What it is is making sure that no one starves. And for instance, we give medical care to everyone so that everyone can survive. But but will everyone live at absolutely the same level? No. So um, this sabbatical year, which is a mitzvah in the same way that um, the more well-known mitzvot of the Ten Commandments um, are mitzvot, are these mitzvot implemented as part of Jewish life in the land of Israel today? Obviously, this was meant for Jews living in the land of Israel and for our, since uh, almost 2,000 years until 1948. Um, there wasn't an independent state in the land. So do Jews uh, live under these rules today? Well, this is very complicated. Uh, but, but in point of fact, the, the, in, in Israel, all the farmland belongs to the, to the nation. Uh, and the kibbutzim, for instance, the farms, um, those belong, ultimately, I think they have 99 year leases and those belong to the government. Okay. So in a certain sense, it belongs to, to everyone. Now, do they have private property? Yes, they do have private property, but there are other laws. So for instance, in the sabbatical year, you're not supposed to plant your crops. You're supposed to eat of that which, according to the Bible, eat of that which grows on its own. And is there an attempt among the ultra-Orthodox to maintain those laws? Yes, there is. Well, they're very difficult because it's not just one year. It's actually three years in the Jubilee year. It's the 49th year, the 50th year. And then in the 51st year, you got to wait for the crops to grow. So the Torah says, rely on me. I will provide a sufficient amount in the sixth year for the seventh or in the 49th year for another two years. Does this happen? Well, no, really, realistically, uh, it doesn't happen. Even if people pretend to, to like sell their land to someone else and maintain the land and eat crops that grow, belong to someone else. Okay. So, um, we've been discussing, um, the sabbatical seven years and the jubilee. 
But right now, the time between Passover and the next Jewish festival, Shavuot, is a multiple of sevens as well. Seven times seven, 49. Um, is that an accident or is it a continuation of this notion of seven being a um, unique and uh, integer that the Torah seems to believe has some uh, divine uh, intuition associated with it. So this is both in Judaism and Christianity. In Judaism, from the, from the day after the first day of Passover, so the second day of Passover, it is exactly seven weeks from the holiday to the holiday of Shavuot. What does that mean? It means the Jewish people became free from slavery in Egypt on Passover, and 50 days later, they're given the legislation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So we celebrate the holiday of freedom, and then we count the days from the second day of Passover. We count the seven weeks, it's called the counting of the Omer, until the revelation, the legislation at Mount Sinai. So this is a holy period of time in which we go, not we, we're going towards freedom. Freedom is not license, as many people uh, interpreted in the United States. Freedom is the ability to choose which laws you're going to obey. And we choose, we reject slavery under a human being, which was the situation in Egypt. And we choose our own voluntary servitude to God, living by God's laws. As Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve their God. Exactly right. And in Christianity, the parallel is from Easter to uh Pentecost, again, penta meaning 50, there's also a 50-day period, but they count it differently. They count it from the, from the Sunday uh, after uh, uh, of Easter, uh, 50 days later on, on, uh, to the holiday of Pentecost. So it's both in both religions, it's 50 days, but we start the counting on a different day. So even for Christianity, the notion of counting and moving from um, an ultimate religious experience, uh, in the case of Christianity, uh, Easter, um, the resurrection, um, and in the case of Judaism, also in many ways, the resurrection of the Jewish people from slavery to the opportunity to serve God is marked by counting. And the counting, as you suggested, uh, brings great meaning to both communities. Um, we have just um, a few minutes left, so I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Mark Levin of uh, um, Overland, Kansas. Um, I always want to say Kansas City, and he always wants to correct me and say it's not really Kansas City. Uh, founding rabbi and rabbi emeritus of Congregation Beth Torah. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, you may listen to our broadcast on CHRA 99.1 on your FM dial, or you can find our show as a podcast on the chra.chri.ca website or on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa and wishing you good day and shalom. Shalom.